Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts what will happen if we don't change and what can we do to create a better future. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next. Matters discussed in this podcast are intended to be of a general nature only. They are not legal advice and should not be relied on as such. You should seek independent legal or other professional advice in relation to any particular matters that you or your organisation may have. In March 2021, Twitter founder Jack Dorsey sold his first tweet for US $2.6 million. The next time it was auctioned, the highest bid was for under $10,000. People create, collect, and trade NFTs with the hope of making profit in the future. Are NFTs a worthwhile investment? How are artists and buyers safeguarded against theft, forgery, or being swindled out of large amounts of money? In this episode, we speak to experts working in the business and international law space. What is a smart contract? What are the legal issues surrounding new technologies? How can artists be protected against copyright issues and forgery? Stay tuned as we investigate the tricky business and legal issues surrounding NFTs. But first, let's hear from an artist who claims to have made the world's first anti-NFT project. So um, my name is Josh uh, Drummond. I am, a, I suppose, uh, at least some of the time an artist um, and would-be grifter. Uh, and would-be NFT enthusiast who created the world's first anti-NFT NFT scheme called the Bird Hat Grift Club. Josh, thank you for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. You started the Bird Hat Grift Club as an anti-NFT project. Tell us about that. So it's what I think is the world's first anti-NFT NFT project. Um, and I did it basically because um, NFTs were are or were um, so hot right now. And um, I just wanted to, first, first I was interested in NFTs because I thought they might have potential for artists to make a living out of, um, you know, out of art in the digital age, which has proven difficult for all sorts of reasons. Um, the more I looked into them, the more I didn't really love what I saw. Like I saw some artists doing well, but mostly I saw artists being ripped off. And um, so I decided like um, I wrote about it for my friend David Farrier, who's got a newsletter called Webworm, which is fantastic. Um, he it's it's sort of a mix of weird internet stuff and really quite full on investigative journalism. So it's a really fantastic mix, and I'm lucky to be able to write for it. I wrote a piece about NFTs, um, and I kind of jokingly said at the end that I'd like to you know, create an NFT project and use it to pay off my mortgage. Um, and then I actually did do that. I, well, no, I didn't pay off my mortgage. That'd be a great punchline, but I'm still hoping for that. Um, what I have done is I've created an NFT project. Um, it uses the most popular format of, um, or the most well-known format of NFT projects, which is, um, uh, they call them PFPs, which is a profile picture project, I suppose. I don't actually know if that's what the acronym stands for. Um, and the idea is, is you create with a whole bunch of elements um, that you that you draw individually or layers, you can create um, entirely unique artworks. So it's um, the way I described it for the articles. It's a little bit like uh, paper dolls. If um, anyone here ever played with paper dolls, you've got your basic doll, 
uh, you can dress it up in in a whole bunch of different clothes, and um, that's 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 pretty much it. You create you create the art. You use a use a program which are um, available open source online to mix up all the different layers, and um, and with relatively few elements, you can have basically infinite combinations. So that in itself, I think, is is quite fun. That was fun. Yeah. So you made this art, and then you sold it. Yeah. So the idea of the um, the project is basically I wanted to create an NFT scheme and kind of put it up against other trad- more traditional or less resource intensive methods of artist support that you can do online. So things like selling prints or selling digital images or selling uh, uh, setting up a Patreon, um, uh, selling merchandise. I went and got some T-shirts made because a bunch of friends said they'd buy T-shirts and surprise they actually did um so i thought if i'll pitch pitch the um the nft buying nfts which is um the the new um thing that's that's for a while there was trending in every piece of media there was um i'll pitch that up against these sort of more traditional and i think more accessible methods of artist support and let it run see what happens um so far the traditional methods are giving nfts an absolute hiding really yeah can I so, ask how many NFTs you sold? One. <laughs> and was that your mum? No, no. Um, I would never sell one of these things to my mum. Um, for, for starters, they, they cost too much. Um, the, the base price of an NFT at the moment is sort of sitting at around the – I haven't actually checked um, lately, but last I looked, it was sitting around like $2,500 to mint one. So it's much cheaper than a board ape, but I set the price – um, intentionally high. I wanted it to one NFT to cost about what I would do a commission to painting for. Um, and, and you sold yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So I sold one, which was uh, in the product of a Twitter argument with a guy who was um, a real big NFT fan who was telling me that my NFTs were much too expensive. And I, I said, "Well, that's kind of the point." He said, "No, they're too expensive." And I, all right, fine. I'll lower the price of one of them. And um, I progressively lowered the price in a, re- in a reverse Twitter auction against someone who really didn't want to buy it until someone else swooped in and grabbed it. Okay, wow. So, I mean, this was, it was an anti-NFT project in that you were trying to show how, I guess, dumb NFTs were, but in the end, it kind of operated as a regular NFT in that you sold one to someone who wanted one. Yeah, I did, and I think they. Um, it turned out they were a member of the little community Discord that I've um, that I've uh, set up that followed the uh, followed my Twitter argument um, as a joke, and then bought it as a joke. I mean, we'd gotten down to one hundred and fifty dollars, so yeah, we've we've sold one NFT and um, and enough traditional support to as I, I think as I um, I think I told someone it would be enough to keep me in therapy for a year. So you know it's. <laughs> <laughs> it, it won't pay the mortgage, but it's um, it's nice to have. How does it work when we have new technology that needs laws around it? Hi, my name's Ben Haywood. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Business Law and Taxation at the Monash Business School. I help teach our undergraduate business students about the legal risks they'll encounter in their future business careers. And my research work looks at how the law can support international trade in various forms in particular. Is the law often a bit sort of slow and chasing its tail to catch up with issues that arise when new technology emerges? It's kind of a Um, observation that's made regularly that the law is always catching up to technology. I did um, read one interesting note about that though that 
new technologies don't always need changes mm. in the law. And while we always say the law is catching up with technology, we don't, for example, rip up the roads every time we have a new model of car or anything like that. So a lot of the time, the existing laws we have can do the trick. Um, when the law does need to change, it's the same process with changes to the law in any other aspect of our lives. The courts can develop the law when they hear individual cases. Uh, the law develops in a piecemeal fashion and it requires a case to come before the courts, which may or may not happen. Otherwise, Parliament can get involved and we can have more comprehensive law reform there, but it depends on the political will there. What I've noticed when people talk about NFTs is it's very much people are either in, are in one of two camps. NFTs are amazing. Everyone buy this picture of my gorilla. It's a way of the future. What's wrong with you idiots? And the other side is like, I can't understand this. This seems like nothing. I'm you're asking me to buy nothing and invest in nothing and I don't I can't wrap my brain around this. Is there a third way or are we just permanently in these two camps? Well, it's interesting and it's, you can see those two camps as well in relation to cryptocurrencies yeah. as well. Cryptocurrency is the future. This yes. is everything or I don't understand it and it's not really going to be useful in my yeah. everyday life. Where are you? Um, Which camp are you in? I think I'm some, I am somewhere in between ah. because it may not necessarily be using an NFT to buy something that doesn't exist. You could use an NFT to obtain some kind of uh, investment interest in gold bars or an actual real painting or uh, a share of an investment property or something that exists in the real world. How is that different though to just buying a share? How is that NFT of the, the, the actual house that really does exist different to buying a share of the house? Yeah, I guess you're trading your interest in a different way. So mm -hmm. you trade that interest by trading the token rather than having to trade your interest in the actual property. But the ownership arrangement's different as well. You're a bit less secure at the same time. So you own the token, but you don't actually have ownership over that property. Um, I wonder, and I'm thinking back to when, um, I don't want to date myself, but when um, computers with the web first hit, the primary school I was attending and I was knew, in high school if that makes you feel better <laughs> we, we knew the internet was a thing yeah but we didn't really know where what, is the internet <laughs> well we didn't really know what it was useful for yeah. either so what we would do is we all got to turn on the computer and myself and my friends would sit there and look up clues about the uh, who shot Mr Burns mystery on the Simpsons which was <laughs> the big thing at the time but now you know interacting with government social media commerce business education as we know through the pandemic using the internet for all of those things it's just an everyday part of our lives and it seems obvious now but it wasn't really obvious back then and I kind of wonder or whether it might be the same with NFTs. We have this technology. These kind of art transactions are one application for it at the minute. Mm. Um, that might persist, but maybe we might find that there's something different that we can use this technology for. And I guess I don't have a crystal ball there and time will tell um, whether that's the case, whether that's the case. Why did NFTs first peg themselves to artwork as opposed to something else? Why is that the area that it, it seems we're all sort of learning about NFTs? I wonder if there's a bit of a cultural aspect to the way art works mm. online. There were some pretty high profile examples of kind of uh, internet artefacts being turned into NFTs and that captures a lot of people's attention. You might remember the the YouTube video with Charlie bit my finger. Yes. With the, the, yes. and, and that went viral and then that got turned into an NFT and that, I guess, captures 
the imagination of the media and the, the general population as well. There's no shortage of weird things that happen on the internet and turning these videos and other artworks into something that's tradable, mm. I guess, is another interesting example of how this technology right. can be used. Let's use that video as a our case study for people who don't understand NFTs, i.e. me. Question number one. Who turned that video into an NFT mm. and who has the right to turn a piece of digital content into an NFT? Well, I guess in principle anyone could do it, but the mm. person that has the right to it to do that is the person who owns the intellectual property rights. So was it Charlie video. who then turned it into? I'm guessing it would probably be Charlie's parents who yeah. took the video. Okay. Um, and the interesting thing here is that there's a role for intellectual property law to play as well. So I mentioned before that you don't own the thing that's linked to the NFT in the same way that you own the actual token. Mm. But at the end of the day, it all depends on what the contract says. And one of the real strengths of our law is that it allows people to enter into any kind of tra transaction they want. And usually the law will respect that. So when you buy a book, you don't buy the intellectual property in the actual original manuscript. You mm. buy the physical thing that's got a copy of it yep. in there. If you buy a Nintendo Switch game, you're buying the cartridge but you're not buying the rights to the code. Similarly, you buy an NFT, you might not be getting the copyright in the artwork or the intellectual property rights. You might just be getting a licence to use it and display it. Or you might actually get the full intellectual property rights if that's what the contract actually right. says. So I guess the devil's in the detail there a bit and um, mm -hmm. that's maybe one of the risks as well with trading in these kind of things. If you don't really read what yeah. you're signing up to, you might not actually know what you're purchasing. Right, I get it. So it's be like I buy a book and someone could go, but I could get that book anytime I want to for free in the library. Mm. But I'll say, yes, you can and go and enjoy that book from the library, but I get to keep this copy for myself. Yeah, this copy's mine. And just like a book can be photocopied, yep. a, a digital artwork might be reproduced, but I guess the NFT is... I guess, recognised by the market as the authoritative copy of that mm. of that particular artwork. You can go to an art gallery and take a photo of a famous Renaissance painting and it reproduces it in a way, but it's not the same as having the actual thing. I guess the difference, though, is if I own the Mona Lisa, I own the physical Mona Lisa, whereas mm. if I own an F NFT, it really isn't any different to someone just sharing the Charlie video again themselves. There is no actual difference, is there? Um, well, even Other than me saying, well, I own it. And that would be a pretty great thing to be able to say. Yeah. Maybe even purchasing a physical painting, you might not still be buying the intellectual property rights. Mm -hmm. You might be buying the right to hang the painting and the right to display it, but you may not have the rights to the actual intellectual property there as well. And again, it'll all depend on what the contract says and, and what the two parties to the transaction have actually agreed to. Arts lawyer Alana Kushnir is an advisor to numerous art tech startups working in the NFT space. Here she is on the legal issues and risks associated with NFTs. Look, the law is, you know, slightly challenged by NFTs and blockchain technology. Okay. There's a quite a well-known case now that's come out of the UK where um, someone who owned these Boss Beauty NFTs, um, they were stolen out of their digital wallet. And so they've actually tried to pursue um, that. It's interesting because by, by nature or by virtue of the beauty of the blockchain, yeah. they're able to track 
where these NFTs had ended up. Yeah. Um, because you can see every transaction right. on, you know, this ledger is public. You can see it. So it's a bit different to if someone went to your house. Yeah. And they stole something. Yeah. And, it and then it's actually, gone. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit harder to yeah. find out where it's actually gone. At least here you can find which digital wallet the NFT has ended up in. So where did it go? Where was it? So it was in a digital wallet, let's yeah. say. So you've got this chain of letters and numbers that represents this wallet essentially. Um, but what they applied for through the UK, UK High Court was a freezing order. So the same uh. as you can apply for, you know, any type of property um, to have that property frozen so that it stops being moved after that. Um, so and, and they were actually successful. And so that means mm. that in the UK at least they've recognised NFTs as property that's capable of being frozen. So we are seeing those those boundaries of the law being tested. The law is, is trying to catch up with, with the events yes. and it makes sense. Why would they preemptively create laws for things that aren't happening? That's right. Are we seeing much of that happen in Australia? We're seeing quite a few um, Senate commission inquiries take place. Um, so there was one that was released last year which um, – it didn't talk too much about NFTs, but it did talk about DAOs, which is sort of all of the species, really, but relevant to blockchain as well, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations and looking at how we could potentially recognize these blockchain-based organizations um, in Australia as corporate entities. So that's really interesting, I think. Um, there's um, other um, consultations happening at the moment, which are, which are also, you know, when it comes to NFTs, they're really looking at, well, how do we treat NFTs? Mm. Should they be treated as securities? Should they be treated, you know, how do we categorise them? How do we place them? So so that's very much happened at the moment. But we haven't had any court cases as such. Do you think we will start yes. seeing them? I, I, I have no doubt it's inevitable. And there'll definitely be, um, you know, certain institutions um, and corporates out there that will want to test, test mm. that in court. While Alana believes there are legal risks associated with buying or selling NFTs, she says there's also a lot to be excited about due to the rise of blockchain-based technology, where purchasers and vendors are playing with the concepts of personal property ownership and intellectual property rights. What do NFTs in Australia look like today? So what are Australian artists doing in the NFT space? And by artists, I really mean, you know, any type of creative practitioner doesn't just have to be someone creating digital artworks. It could be someone who's a games developer or a musician, anyone doing creative things with NFTs. And I think this is going to be a really... Um, important moment in time where we can actually look back and think about how NFTs are working here in Australia locally. That hasn't really happened. We're often looking at what's happening elsewhere when it comes to NFTs, but actually there's some really exciting projects coming out here. We have we have numerous um, NFT platforms that are supporting artists that are creating work here as well. Um, so, yeah, there's lots happening in the space. I... Also, I um, co-authored the legal chapter for the report, of course. So looking at, well, what are the legal issues that are coming up? Um, and also looked at resale royalties. Mm -hmm. So something um, that is often touted when it comes to NFTs is, oh, I can earn a living from this one day because it'll get resold and the royalty will go back to me. Um, that's very much a marketing spin. And mm. if you dig a little deeper, um, it's not actually so clear cut. And it makes it particularly complicated in a jurisdiction like Australia, where we already have legislation for resale royalties. Yep. And this resale royalties legislation in Australia actually 
covers digital artwork. So it doesn't mention NFTs because, of course, it predates yeah. NFTs. But we have resale royalty legislation as well, which says that if a work is resold um, and it's sold for, I think, over $1,000 by an Australian artist, then 5% has to go back to the artist. And you also have to report that resale as well. Um, so how does that work when it gets to NFTs? What happens if you're an Australian artist and you're minting your NFTs um, using a platform that is actually based overseas? How, how are they going? Uh, do they actually report mm. your NFT sale? I don't think so, at least at this stage. So there's all these questions around how do the resale royalties that NFT platforms provide, how does that actually work with existing legislation for, for resale royalties? It's just something that hasn't really been thought through and needs to be thought through. Um, so, so that's a really an interesting space to watch. I think now I can at least get my head around what an actual NFT is. However, like most new technologies, it's still too early to tell if they're worth me investing my money into. That concludes our final episode of NFTs. Thanks very much to all our guests, Dr. Ben Hayward, Professor John McCormack, Alana Kushnir and Josh Drummond. For more information about their work, visit our show notes. We are currently halfway through this series and we're going to take a break for the summer holidays. But don't worry, we will be back and you can catch the second half of Season 7 of What Happens Next. If you're enjoying What Happens Next, don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share the show with your friends. Matters discussed in this podcast are intended to be of a general nature only. They are not legal advice and should not be relied on as such. You should seek independent legal or other professional advice in relation to any particular matters that you or your organisation may have.